Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, wait and see. We're going to see how this plays out. The Prime Minister says nothing is off the table, but for now he's not looking for a fight, waiting to see how Premier Daniel Smith's Sovereignty Act will play out. We'll get some reaction from members of Parliament and look at the politics behind the legislation. And... Bank of Canada posts its first loss in its 87-year history. What impact will that have on federal coffers? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Premier Danielle Smith's Sovereignty Act has now passed first reading. Introduced yesterday in the Alberta throne speech, under this legislation, provincial cabinet would have the ability to direct organizations in Alberta to ignore any policy or federal mandate they decided harmful to the province. And in justifying the act, the Premier points to the Prime Minister accusing him of being harmful to Alberta and its people. But Justin Trudeau is not reacting, at least not yet. Take a listen. We're going to focus on delivering for Albertans the way we have. Uh, we know uh, that the exceptional powers uh, that the Premier is uh, choosing to give the Alberta government in bypassing the Alberta legislature is causing a lot of eyebrows to raise in Alberta. Uh, and uh, we're going to see how this plays out. Uh, I'm not going to take anything off the table, but I'm also not looking for a fight. Uh, we want to continue to be there to deliver for Albertans. There's going to be things that we agree with that government on. There's going to be things we disagree with them on. And my focus is always going to be to be constructive in terms of delivering for people right across the country. Thank you the Prime Minister from earlier today. Now, for more reaction to Premier Smith's Sovereignty Act, we're now joined by two members of Parliament. Arif Varani is the Liberal member for the riding of Parkdale High Park in Toronto. He's also the Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of International Trade. And Blake Desjardins is the NDP member of Parliament for the riding of Edmonton Griesbach. Hello to both of you. Hi there. Hey, Michael. Mr. Varani, you know, the Prime Minister says he's not looking for a fight with Alberta. He's going to wait and see. Is that because he believes this will not survive a court challenge? Well, I think it's a bit premature in fairness to talk about a court challenge. What we have is something that was introduced in the Alberta legislature today at first reading. It hasn't even passed uh, the legislature, and even if it does pass, the legislature still requires some action or motion to be moved by a cabinet minister to trigger something under this uh, potential legislation. Uh, I think what's important is that the Prime Minister is emphasizing is that we deal with Albertans the way we deal with every other part of the country. We're trying to address people's needs. And in Alberta, we've had constructive co- uh, discussions and dialogue and cooperation even on things like the child care uh, legislation that we put forward, that Jason Kenney cooperated with us on, things like uh, hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, carbon capture. These types of things I think are important to Albertans and they're important to all Canadians. And that's what we're focused on right now. Okay, that's your focus. Mr. Desjardins, I'm wondering uh, from your perspective, as an Albertan, what do you think of what's being proposed? here? Well, I think, Michael, what Albertans are used to in many ways is this kind of adversarial approach to Ottawa. You know, it's not uh, far out to suggest that Albertans have in fact seen over the over the period of time some resistance some, uh, to some of the issues that matter most to Albertans. But what we're seeing with Daniel Smith is something far different than that. We're seeing 
very drastic overreach and extreme uh, extreme pushback, and it's hurting Albertans today. That's really my belief, and it's what I hear on the doors. I know that this is not top of mind for Albertans. Albertans would have liked to see a plan from their premier that looked and addressed at the healthcare crisis we're facing in our province. People are lined up right now in the Calgary hospital. Some kids are waiting 20 hours just to see a physician. Kids who are sick at home have no access to uh, to the medicine they need and what they're seeing from their premier isn't the kind of leadership that uh, people would expect. People would expect a leader that actually addresses the needs of Albertans and that's not what we're seeing right now. Now Mr. Verani, I know you say it's too early to talk about any type of court challenge but it, you know Premier Smith has been very open about this. She argues that this act only ensures uh, the separation of powers and responsibilities between provinces and the federal government. It really is guaranteed by the Constitution and she points to what she sees as federal overreach in programs like national child care. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I'd say that obviously her government or the predecessor leader of the, of the government of Alberta signed an agreement with us with respect to childcare. We do not feel that we have usurped our jurisdiction or exceeded our jurisdiction. But I also point out, I mean, Michael, I used to practice law in this specific area of the division of powers and the charter of rights. And we know that there are venues for challenging uh, constitutionality of provisions. Uh, those venues are the courts. Those, it's important that it remains that way. So it's not for the premier of Alberta or uh, any federal government elected leader to opine on constitutionality. That's for courts to verify. We just think it's a little bit premature to be opining upon that. Obviously, you know, it's important that Blake just highlighted healthcare. Healthcare is, is a pressing matter. It's also a matter of shared jurisdiction. We have a Canada Health Act. Uh, we ensure that the principles of the Canada Health Act are, are adhered to. And that's an important facet of how our federation operates. And that's something that we'd like to be working with Albertans and other premiers on. And that's the type of thing that I think people are really more concerned about rather than what seems to be a fairly symbolic gesture uh, and just just really just that. But I wonder if you're concerned about the, the language that's being used here because in justifying this act the Premier uh, has said that uh, the Trudeau government has been disrespectful of Alberta and Albertans. She argues uh, the government has crossed jurisdictional lines, have stood in the way of the province's oil industry, uh, ignored the province's concerns over transfer payments. So I appreciate what you're saying but certainly the language around this being used to justify it points to your government. And I've heard the language and obviously different premiers will employ different languages and obviously she's speaking to Albertans and perhaps her base in terms of uh, utilizing that type of language but I'll say to you that you know it, it, there have been instances where uh, grievances have been raised about potential constitutional overreach by the federal government. The most recent example is actually when the Alberta government joined with a few others around the country and challenged our price on pollution. That went to the Supreme Court of Canada, that's the most appropriate venue. It ruled unanimously in favor of the federal government exercising rightful jurisdiction to address what is a pressing national issue, which is climate change and environmental pollution. So we have fora for these disputes. Those fora are the courts. Uh, that's where constitutional matters are meant to be determined. And that's the way that's the way it is and that's the way it should be. Uh, in terms of Premier Smith, I mean, I'd encourage you to reach out to her directly about the type of language she's using. We want to have a productive dialogue with MPs such as Blake from, from uh, the province of Alberta, but also with the province the provincial government of Alberta itself, because that's the, to the benefit of those Albertan Canadians. Yeah, Blake, what do you say to the, to the language that's being used here, at least the arguments being used, in terms of pointing to, to Ottawa as ignoring the province, ignoring Albertans, and again, ignoring issues like federal uh, transfer payments? Well, I think it's a convenient and easy distraction for Albertans that have just seen one of the worst uh, and worst experiences as Albertans reeled with the results of COVID under leadership of former Premier Kenny. 
And so for her, she's going to have to have a really interesting pitch to Albertans to actually find a way to change the dial on Jason Kenney's deplorable actions in the province and especially the underfunding of our public health care system. So I think in one way the language uh, is a distraction for, for folks, but to be more explicit, we've seen from other Indigenous groups across the, the province, from my relatives, from Treaty 6 to Treaty 7 to Treaty 8, unanimously denounced the language found in the Act because of its overreach and its uh, threat to treaty rights in the province. And so I think what we're seeing, is, one, is the threat to treaty rights in that language, and then two, I think a really big concern within the language is the, the, the perspectives of democracy and the rule of law being upheld in our province. When we're talking about those two incredibly important principles, and we see the language of, of the ministers being able to go in, or the premier, into, into the province of Alberta, and go into the house and declare something unconstitutional, and then simply have it read as unconstitutional for the purpose of the minister to then direct uh, other bodies and agencies like police to ignore federal laws. This is uh, an, an egregious attack on the rule of law and democracy in Alberta. And I do believe that we need to find ways to ensure that treaty rights and the rights of Albertans aren't trampled on. Okay, I, I've, I've got less than a minute, and so uh, forgive me, uh, Mr. Varani, we're going to stay here with Mr. Desjardins, because I, I wonder, as someone from Alberta, uh, the province has an election in six months. Do you think Danielle Smith will gain any political points with this act? No. I believe that what she's done for Albertans is further polarize Albertans in a time when we need unity. We need a province and we need a leader that truly recognizes Albertans and where they're at. We need to recognize that rural Alberta and urban Alberta are in fact part of the same province and that we can in fact have a united province of Alberta. And her language and what she's doing is further dividing Albertans. You might have seen recently she failed to run in the, nom in the empty seat uh, in Calgary because it was an urban riding. She told, Alber she told Calgarians that they weren't worth representing. And so she called a by-election elsewhere in Medicine Hat, a rural seat where she could win. What does that say to urban riding? urban ridings in the province of Alberta. What does that say to Calgarians when they're someone that they expect to be premier in the short few months back when she was running wasn't able or wasn't willing to run in an urban center like Calgary? It speaks to a party that can't unite. Blake Desjardins, uh, Arif Varani, thank you very much for the time today. Appreciate your thoughts on the matter. Thank you. Thank you. We want to note that we did invite the Conservative Party to take part in today's panel, but our request went unanswered. But Conservative MP Gerard Deltel was asked about the Alberta Sovereignty Act today, and this is how he responded. Five different Parti Québécois government achieved great things for Quebec. So yes, you can achieve great things for your province within, inside the Confederation, as long as you respect your jurisdiction. That's what happened in Quebec, and I think each and every province can get inspirational from that inside Canada as a proud Canadian. Well, with more on Premier Smith's Sovereignty Act, we're now joined by Jen Gerson, political commentator and co-founder of The Line. Jen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Listen, I want to begin uh, with your impressions here. What do you make of this act so far? Because on the one hand, the title has been watered down because it's no longer just the Alberta Sovereignty Act. But on the other hand, it also seems to propose greater powers to ignore federal programs and mandates. So overall, what do you make of what you've heard so far? I mean, my first impression was just disdain and laughter, like just just a lot of guffawing and, 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 and going, what in the world is this? So I think that there are two issues with this bill, and they're two slightly separate issues. The one is, of course, the legal theory that is going on inside the legislation itself. And I use the word theory pretty lightly because it's borderline Freeman on the land stuff. Um, and then the other issue is the the political implication of what 
is being attempted through this uh, legislation. Now that is is a little bit more interesting. So it's hard to tell right now whether or not the Sovereignty Act within a united Canada is um, uh, the really the dumbest piece of legislation or the most brilliant political tactic uh, one could possibly imagine. Okay, let's break that up and first begin with the legal argument because to hear it from Premier Smith, uh, she argues that really what this act does is reinforce the divisions of power and jurisdictions as outlined in the constitution and there is this question as to whether or not it would actually uh, would actually survive rather a, a court challenge okay so the, the the problem with a type of sovereignty act type thing is that it's either redundant or it's unconstitutional either you're just passing a piece of legislation that reaffirms constitutional jurisdiction which is fine but why we already have that in the constitution or you're creating a new set of laws that would be inherently constitutional because it would override that constitution. And the weird thing about the Sovereignty Act is that it kind of tries to do both. It's very bizarre. So what the Sovereignty Act is trying to do is it's trying to say, look, in a normal confederated system, um, the federal government or a provincial government passes a law and maybe there's some dispute about whether or not it's encroaching in another um, order of government's uh, uh, jurisdictional space. In an ordinary time, what you would do is the aggrieved party would then take that order of government to court. A court could pass an injunction and say, we're going to suspend this legislation or suspend these regulations until we can actually decide on this. And then the court, it would go through a court testing process for the court to decide um, uh, which order of government it, it, such a regulation or law appropriately belonged to. Fine. Great. We've done that. We've seen that play before. We saw it last with, like, for example, the, 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 the Carbon Tax Act, right? Like, Federal government passes a law, provinces say this is our jurisdiction, it goes through the court process, court process says federal federal government can pass this. So there's all kinds of contested areas like this. Um, uh, and one of these areas that is very grave, for example, is in criminal law. Uh, remember, for example, when British Columbia said we are not going to enforce um, uh, laws against uh, marijuana dispensaries. Mm -hmm. Well, that was in violation of the constitutional right of the, the federal government to impose criminal law on marijuana. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. we do see some some gray area here. Um, but what this law is attempting to do is it's trying to so short circuit that um, legal process and that seeking an injunction process and saying, no, 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 if we think something's not constitutional, we are going to um, uh, put the authority to enforce it back into the, the provincial cabinet. So instead of going to court and seeking an injunction, we're just going to say that this is unconstitutional and we're going to, to say that the federal cabinet can just um not enforced yeah, which is so, why sorry sorry continue so that they don't they, they then don't have to go through the, the hassle of the legal process hypothetically yeah. of 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 trying to assert jurisdictional provincial jurisdictional authority of course provinces can't do that <laughs> that that's not how the system works and that's why what is being proposed here is unconstitutional and why it it, it has almost no chance of um, surviving a, a, a constitutional challenge. The first time this act is actually invoked or somebody tries to use it, it will be subject to a constitutional challenge and it will lose. Which, so, which many people are pointing to already, the, the fact that it yeah. will be almost uh, guaranteed challenged in court and not survive. Yeah. That said, you know, that presupposes a, a verdict, but you, you also point to the fact that this could be political brilliance. And I was wondering about the kind of political calculation behind introducing and moving forward with this kind of act in Alberta. Okay, there's two, two sort of political gambits here. There's what the legislation actually says. Let's put that aside for a moment, because let's just accept that that's banana crackers. Then there's the political gambit. The political gambit here is that 
Danielle Smith is coming out to her base and saying, look, I'm being aggressive on Ottawa. I'm taking the fight to Ottawa. I'm being assertive on these issues. We're an aggrieved party. And look at me, I'm being tough. And even if the thing is struck down in a year, two years, three years, four years, five years by the Supreme Court, doesn't matter because she's thinking by then I've already won the next election and we'll have moved on to the next issue. The second thing she's thinking is that even if the, 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 the Supreme Court does strike it down, she can then use that as an argument to say, Alberta is getting an unfair deal from Confederation. We are, we are subject to, to particular discrimination. How come we can't do this and all these other provinces can engage in all this kind of chicanery? Well, we're, we're clearly the aggrieved party of, 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 of Canada. And of course, this can then be parlayed into a grievance politics that has always served um, conservative governments, and particularly the UCP in this province. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's purely for domestic political purposes. The other question here is to what extent is she trying to go the federal government into overstepping or is doing something intemperate, as, as I've heard it said. Well, it's interesting because we've already heard the prime minister says that he's not looking to, to have a fight over the Sovereignty Act, that he's going to, to take this wait-and-see attitude. And that's really smart because the worst thing that he could do would be to say, I'm going to invoke disallowance and not allow this law to pass because Smith would then come around and say, look, Justin Trudeau is trying to meddle in our affairs once again. We are the aggrieved province in, in, in Alberta. That would play very, very well for her domestically within the Alberta um, uh, electorate. So essentially, it's it's a giant game of, I mean, I, I talked to Ian Holloway, who's the dean of law school here at University of, of Calgary, and he's like, look, this is a game of chicken. This isn't legislation. It's a game of chicken. That's all that, that this is. She's trying to force Twitter to freak out. She's trying to force the, uh, um, uh, uh, the NDP opposition leader, Rachel Notley, to you know come out against alberta's sovereignty act um, and she's seeded just enough nonsense in the legislation itself to try and make it seem palatable to more moderate ucp leaders so it's 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 the dumbest piece of legislation but it might be very smart politics well we are watching uh, jen really appreciate the time today thank you for the insight anytime and a closing note, two hours after the Sovereignty Act was referenced in the throne speech, Jason Kenney resigned his seat in the Alberta legislature. Kenney was a federal cabinet minister and is Premier Smith's immediate predecessor. He has also been a staunch critic of the act, and in resigning, he cited concerns about the political polarization that he sees happening in this country, both in left and right politics. His resignation as MLA was effective immediately. Well, we were told it was coming, and now we know the figure. A $522 million loss for the Bank of Canada in the third quarter, the result of its quantitative easing policy and its own decision to hike interest rates. Take a listen to the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin as he gave his assessment of the situation. After a period of above average income, our net income, our net interest income is now turning negative. Following a period of losses, the Bank of Canada will return to positive net earnings. The size and duration of the losses will ultimately depend on a number of factors. Uh, these include, in particular, the path for interest rates, as well as the evolution of the economy and the balance sheet. The losses do not affect our ability to conduct monetary policy. With more on the Bank of Canada's third quarter loss, we're now joined by Pedro Altunes. Mr. Altunes is the Chief Economist for the Conference Board of Canada. Mr. Altunes, thank you for joining us today. 
You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So Canada Central Bank, uh, we should say right off top, not the only national institution posting these huge losses, but how troubling is it for the bank? Uh, how unique is it for the bank to be reporting this loss of $522 million? Yeah, no, that's over uh, essentially uh, the last quarter, uh, quarter three. Um, and it is unusual because typically the, the bank is a lender of last resort uh, and it uh, actually has assets that earn interest. And on a net basis, uh, it earns a net income. Uh, and that in- income is uh, essentially, as far as I know, has been positive uh, for, for the last 30 years at least. Um, and that uh, is given, uh, in, in essence, uh, on a regular basis to the federal government. So it goes into the federal government's, uh, you know, um, general revenues um, in, in terms of its budget planning, etc. Mm-hmm. Which I'll get to in a moment. But I think it's worthwhile to help people understand just how we got here. What exactly did the Bank of Canada do to get to this point where they're looking at this loss again for the very first time in decades? Well, it's a combination of two things, really. Um, as you know, during the pandemic, the Bank of Canada wanted to inject a lot of liquidity into the system. And, and what that means is essentially Bank of Canada can, you know, essentially print money, if you'd like, in a way to uh, and uh, that enables it to purchase assets. And the assets it purchased were bonds, uh, Government of Canada bonds, provincial bonds. It even got involved into corporate bonds and, and mortgage bonds uh, to try and, and get as much liquidity out there as possible in in a time of crisis where people really didn't know if the financial system would seize in a situation where you know we were closing down the economy. So the bank, I think, acted in a in a very responsible way, very quickly uh, to try and ensure that we kept the economy flowing through that very tough time. But what that means now is that the asset, uh, the the bank is now holding a lot of these assets that are essentially Government of Canada 10-year bonds that are paying a half a percent or less, uh, while uh, its interest rate that it pays on deposits that uh, mostly chartered banks have with the Bank of Canada have gone up because, of course, the bank since March has raised short-term rates very quickly. So it's the difference between those two. Uh, that is essentially gone from a net positive historically to all of a sudden a net negative. Well, and I think that's 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 a bit of the irony here, isn't it? In that part of the bank's problem is its very own policy to try to fight inflation. Well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the cost of uh, essentially that monetary tightening that has come very very quickly. Uh, you know, obviously we know that the, the the bank, the Bank of Canada, and many other central banks were expecting that. Uh, you know, we would see, uh, you know, a troubled economy for a much longer period of time. I don't think they were expecting that, uh, you know, inflation, uh, certainly early on, even in, in, in late 2021, uh, most of the discussions from the central banks were that uh, inflation was going to be transitory and, and, you know, not too concerned. But here we are, fast forward to March of this year, and both in Canada and the U.S., um, you know, we, we started to see that, oh my gosh, inflation is really taking hold. We need to fight this. And we've seen those short-term rates come up very, very quickly. Possibly we're going to hit over 4% uh, with the next announcement from the central bank in, in December. Mm-hmm. So what impact does this then have? You, you, you reference it very quickly in terms of government revenues, because I, I, I wonder the impact, because I, I also take it that the government, not only looking at its revenue situation, must now decide if it will actually, what, cover the loss that's being posted by the bank? Well, I think the federal government will 
likely have no choice. Uh, you know, this is uh, uh, what has flowed into the federal government's uh, kind of revenue stream over the last decades. Uh, now there's a, an, an outflow, and I think the, the federal government will have to deal with it. Uh, you know, certainly when we look at what's happened, what inflation has done to the federal government's books, it's actually a positive. As you know, uh, federal and provincial governments take a share or a, a certain portion of our nominal income. And so if inflation comes up, uh, that tends to drive up nominal income and it drives up government revenues. And this is what we're seeing across the board uh, from the federal economic update. A lot of the provinces are doing better than expected. There's some of that, of course, is raw material prices and oil, oil prices that have recovered. Uh, but a lot of that as well is due to these kind of higher inflation. So, you know, obviously there's a cost here to the bank. Uh, high inflation is costly to the Bank of Canada, uh, but it's been in, in some ways a benefit in terms of the net revenues for uh, for for federal government. Uh, so I think they'll have to offset this, um, uh, you know, and, and essentially cover those losses. Now, of course, uh, as you know very well, Tiff Macklin, uh, the Bank of Canada, uh, has been criticized in recent months, especially considering how quickly it has raised interest rates to try to take on inflation. Uh, we now have this loss being uh, being posted after uh, the Trudeau government, at least, has been criticized for spending as much money as it has. So uh, Tiff Macklin says there will probably need to be a review of the kind of tools that was used by by the Bank of Canada uh, at the start of the pandemic. Do you think that makes sense? What exactly would you be looking for if you were going to review the actions, given not only the loss, but now uh, the situation that this country finds itself in? Yeah, I think uh, obviously every time uh, we see an economic cycle, you know, economics is not a perfect science. It's not at all like physics. <laughs> every time we think we understand how the economy is going to work, uh, things change on us uh, just enough to keep us guessing. Uh, but obviously, you know, what we faced during the pandemic, again, was, you know, something nobody could have uh, planned for. And I think the, the response, both in terms of monetary policy and fiscal policy, uh, was essentially appropriate and was, you know, uh, in the face of so much uncertainty, uh, something we needed to do. Where, where you could criticize a little bit is um, as we started to close the gap on the economy uh, over the second half of 2021, and certainly at the beginning of this year, I think both federal and you know, monetary policy uh, were, were really catching up to the reality. And the reality was that uh, we were moving from an economy that was in excess capacity to one that was in excess demand. We were no longer, especially with respect to labor markets. So uh, we were above our capacity. We were no longer able to deliver. Demand was too strong. The support programs had been generous. Interest rates had stayed low for such a long time. Uh, housing markets had taken off. People were looking to purchase uh, not only home furnishings and housing, but other durable goods. And we just couldn't furnish all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially, I think that's where uh, we could have seen a little more action earlier on from both, uh, you know, federal um, uh, and provincial fiscal policy, but also we could have seen the monetary tightening coming in a little, a little quicker or a little earlier. Uh, having said all that, though, you know, we're in the situation we are, uh, we're in right now, and that is that, uh, you know, we are seeing, I think, the effects of much higher rates now starting to uh, slow the economy, starting to ease consumer demand. Um, and I think there's some good news, especially coming out of the U.S., uh, with respect to where core inflation is at. So hopefully we'll, we'll see that soft landing scenario. Well, we certainly are watching. Uh, Pedro Altunas, thank you very much for the time today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure.
And that is our program. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.